Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message. Lover of my soul. Well, for a number of different reasons, there's lots of Christians that struggle with the whole idea of whether or not God loves them. And so some people believe that God is so immense and he's so awesome that he doesn't even notice them. And so their attitude is, you know, God is so big and I'm so small. Does he, does, he, does he even know I exist? Or if he does know I exist, does he even care about me? Other people have another attitude. Their attitude is that God is so holy and just that he will not forgive their sin. That he's kind of up there in heaven doing this. And so their attitude is, man, I really blew it this time. I sinned yet again. God must be so mad at me. Why do I even bother? And so the questions this morning are, is God so immense that he doesn't care about us? Is he so holy that he won't forgive our sin? And the answer especially from the second half of Mark chapter five, where we're gonna be today, the answer is a resounding no. That when Christ came to the earth, he dispelled the spurious belief that God does not love the world. Exact opposite, you guys know it, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave his one and only son. And so today, second half of Mark chapter five, what we're gonna see is that Jesus Christ, the immense son of God, Jesus Christ, the holy son of God, he comes and he reaches out in our passage to sinful people like you and me. He reaches out in love and he proves by his words and his works, like our title says, that he is absolutely the lover of our souls. And by the way, you may be here today and you might say, well, I don't feel like God loves me. That's your problem. You don't go by your feelings. You go by what's taught in this book. You go by what's taught in God's word. And so we're gonna pick it up in verse 21 and see the teaching. And by the way, um, the reason we're starting in verse 21 is because last week, church family, what verse did we stop at? Verse 20. So if you're new to Calvary, about 90% of the time, this is what we just do. We just go verse by verse. We let God speak. And so, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Okay, so we go back to our map of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, we saw this last week, has already proved that he is the lover of the soul of a demoniac. And if you weren't here, you gotta go back and listen. But Jesus, last week, he was over on the eastern shore, the right-hand side of the Sea of Galilee. Scholars believe around the area of Gergesa there. Um, and so that's where uh, he proved by his words and works that he loved a guy that was filled with demons. He absolutely set that guy free. He got in the boat with his disciples, and they headed west. Scholars believe most likely to the northwest shore up on the upper left-hand side of the Sea of Galilee around the area of Capernaum. And he goes there because Capernaum, of course, is the home base for his Galilean ministry. 
And so because the western shore, and you remember this, the western shore is predominantly made up of Jews, and so because the western shore uh, was more populated than the eastern shore, which was predominantly made up of Gentiles, then when Jesus, and I, I want you to picture this in, in your mind, there he is, he's on the boat with his disciples, they're coming up to Capernaum, they're about to dock, and he looks and he sees a great crowd, a great big Jewish crowd. And so I hope you have that picture in your mind. And now we look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers in this very Jewish area, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, okay, Jairus seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. By the way, some of you who are parents, try to put yourself in the sandals of Jairus. Imagine if your little girl, your little boy, was at the point of death. My little girl is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so in verse 24, Jesus went with Jairus, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so now we're introduced to Jairus, who the Bible says is the ruler of the synagogue, again, most likely in the area of Capernaum. Now, to be a ruler of the synagogue means that you had, in that day, a very high position among the people. And you would think that a guy with such a distinguished position would have it all together. But just the opposite, Jairus was a complete emotional wreck. And the reason that he's an emotional wreck is because his daughter is so sick, she's at the point of death. Luke tells us that this girl was his only daughter. And then we're going to find out later that she's 12 years old. So Jairus, this distinguished highly positioned ruler of the synagogue. He's there. He sees Jesus coming on the boat. He sees Jesus dock. He sees Jesus get out of the boat. There's a great crowd, thousands of people, however many people, and he makes his way to Jesus, and he literally falls down at Jesus' feet. And he implores the Lord, please come with me. My daughter's at the point of death. If you'll just lay your hands on her, then she will be made well. And so Nothing will bring a person to their knees quicker than when someone they love is seriously ill. Isn't that true? And that leads you to your first point this morning. That in times of trouble, people will often open their hearts to the Lord. You see, Jairus was experiencing a time of trouble. And so because the time of trouble, the crisis hit his house, now he's wide open to the Lord. He's falling at Jesus' feet. And you might say, well, why wouldn't he be open to the Lord before? Well, that's, a, that, that's easy to answer. Here's why. Because he's a ruler of a Jewish synagogue. He's a Jewish religious leader in a time when Jewish religious leaders were very much opposed to Jesus. And so you need to know that when the Pharisees in the crowd, and you might say, well, how do you know there's Pharisees in the crowd? Listen, there's always Pharisees in the crowd. The party poopers are always there, ready to jump on Jesus. And so 
The Pharisees, when they see one of their own come and kneel down before the Lord and give him the honor that's due his name, they're angry. They're hopping mad. If you weren't with us, way back in chapter 3, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, and the Herodians, who were the political leaders, they got together, and they've already been making secret plans to destroy Jesus. And so I have a question for you. You can answer out loud if you want, yes or no. Do you think Jairus really cared what his peers thought at his time of trouble? Yes or no? No. His little daughter was at the point of death. Nothing else mattered to him than seeing his daughter get better. I learned a principle at my former church more than 14 years ago uh, from Pastor Dan Plord, and that is this. In the good times, people tend to party. But in the bad times, people tend to ponder. What do people ponder during the bad times of their life? They ponder things like, does God exist? Does he care? Does he notice me? Can he help me get out of my crisis? You see, when everything is good in people's lives, it's kind of like, you know, why do I need God? I got a big house, I got a lot of money in the bank, I got a great job, I got my health, why do I need God, right? And people tend to party and they tend to ignore God. But then all of a sudden, bam, a crisis hits and the next thing you know, they're on their knees. Am I, am I speaking the truth this morning? People hit their knees when the crisis hits. And so if you have an unsaved friend or family member, and by the way, if you're new to the Bible, you might think saved, unsaved, you know, aren't those Baptist terms? Well, the Baptist church definitely uses those terms a lot, but guess where they get those terms? Right from the word of God. That's Paul's words in the book of Romans. Ladies and gentlemen, um, you need to understand that they're, generally speaking, there's two groups of people in the world, saved and unsaved, forgiven and unforgiven, people who are on their way to heaven and people who are on their way to hell. That's just what the, what the Bible says, whether we like it or not, or whether it's politically correct or not. Question is, are you saved or are you unsaved? If, you have un, if you're saved and you have unsaved friends or family members and they're going through a crisis, please, please, please share Christ with them. Share about Christ's power and his love and his mercy. Why? Because at that moment of crisis, your friend, your family member is wide open to the Lord. They may be more open to the Lord than they'll ever be. And so take advantage of the situation and share the love of Jesus with them and his power to save. And so Jairus comes to the Lord, falls at his feet, says, Lord, my little girl is sick. Please come, lay your hands on her. And so Jesus goes with Jairus. They begin to walk, big crowd. Everybody's thronging, pushing, touching on Jesus. And they're making their way to Jairus' house. And we'll pick it up now in verse 25. We're introduced to a new character here. It says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood. Some of your translations say an issue of blood. Look at this, for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so we're now introduced to the woman with the issue of blood a woman who was 
physically and emotionally just completely depleted and drained. And again, you know, we, 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 we kind of want to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the sandals of these people that we're faced with in the Bible so that we can kind of relate to where they're at. This lady is absolutely physically drained. Why? Because she's been bleeding, not for one year, two years, three years. She's been bleeding, hemorrhaging for 12 long years. And maybe this was due to some kind of tumor inside of her uterus. Maybe it was uh, some type of uterine cancer or other complication. We don't know. But what we do know from the Bible is that she was experiencing something like a never-ending period. And it says in verse 26 that she suffered much under many physicians. She suffered much under many physicians. Why? Because in that day, first century A.D., the study of medicine was riddled with all kinds of superstition. When you look at the Jewish Talmud, um, for a woman in this lady's condition, a woman who had an issue of blood, the Jewish Talmud said, okay, so here's what you need to do. You need to, if you have this issue, uh, take the ashes of an ostrich egg and sprinkle them, ladies, into your menstrual cloth, and then that will cure you. No wonder she was suffering much under many physicians. If that doesn't work, the Jewish Talmud goes on to say that you're, take, you're to take three pints of Persian onions, put them in boiling wine, and drink it, and while you're drinking it, someone should stand up and say, quote, arise from thy flux, and then you'll be cured. Now, I could literally go on and on and on for probably 10 or 15 minutes with all the so-called remedies in first century quote-unquote medicine, but I'll spare you of all the superstitious nonsense. Suffice it to say what the Bible says, that this woman was suffering under many physicians, she was broke, she was bleeding, and her issue, rather than getting better, it's just getting worse. She's depleted, she's discouraged physically, she's depleted, she's discouraged emotionally because she's feeling rejected According to the law of Moses, she was ritually unclean and socially untouchable. So one of the guys that I usually read sometimes uh, during the week to help prepare is uh, Chuck Swindoll. Check out what Pastor Swindoll says about this woman's condition. He says, quote, to be ritually unclean meant that a person could not join in normal social activities. A woman in this condition could not enter the temple or a synagogue. She couldn't have physical contact with other people. She couldn't marry if her condition occurred early in her life. And if married, the law forbade intercourse. Socially, she might as well have been a leper. Again, we're trying to get ourselves into the sandals of the people in the Bible so that we can actually relate what they're going through and feel some pity for their suffering. And so no worship at the temple or synagogue. You're not allowed to come in here. No hanging out or contact with friends. If she was a mom, she couldn't even get an embrace from her little boy or her little girl. If she was married, she uh, could not enjoy intimacy with her husband. And so this woman, she was not just bleeding physically, she had a bleeding heart. And so in verse 27, it says that she had heard the reports about Jesus. 
By the way, you know why she heard reports about Jesus? Because people were talking about Jesus. Do you know how people in our community on the Treasure Coast are gonna hear about Jesus? It's when Christians like you and me start talking about Jesus, not just on Sunday in four walls, but Monday through Saturday at our job, in our neighborhood, at the Walmart or the Publix or other places. We need to talk about Jesus, his love, his power, his mercy, the fact that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just as real today as he's ever been, and he still has the power to deliver people. She hears this, these reports. She's hearing the reports, right? And it says, and so she, what did she do? She came up, I'm in verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. So some scholars believe this is the outer cloak that rabbis wore, and the outer cloak would have tassels, and so the tassel is probably hanging right around here, mid-back, and so what does this woman do? What she does is that she presses into the multitude. The crowd had formed a barrier around Jesus, but this woman did not care. She just wanted to be made whole. And so crowd or no crowd, she's getting to the Lord. And so she puts her head down and she begins to press into the presence of Christ. Somehow she gets right up behind him and she's thinking, if I can just touch his garments, I'll be made whole. And so she reaches out, reaches, 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 and oh, bam, she touches his tassel, and immediately the Bible says she can feel within herself that the flow of blood has stopped and she has been healed. That is good news. Because how many of you guys believe Jesus still heals today? He still can make people whole today. But you know what I love about this story? Is that Jesus changed this woman's identity. You need to know that when you have an issue of blood for 12 years, 12 long years, that that becomes your identity. And so this woman walked around for 12 years, and you know what she thought about herself? I'm the woman with the issue of blood. Until she met Jesus Christ and reached out in faith and touched him, and he changed her identity into a child of God. You see... Some of you are here today and you guys, you have struggled with so many difficult issues in your past. Abuse, alcoholism, depression, divorce, right? A loved one that you cared for so deeply committed suicide and it caused so much pain in your life that that became your identity. You began to tell yourself, I'm the girl who was sexually abused. I'm the guy who's an alcoholic. I'm the guy who suffers with depression. I'm the girl who was divorced. Or I'm the person whose mom or dad or brother or sister committed suicide. And you've allowed that to become your identity. Well, I'm here this afternoon to tell you something, that that is not your identity. You need to take that thought captive and make that thought obedient to Jesus Christ. Because here's what I know, that if you have, best way you know how, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and Lord, that he has made you a child of God. 
And so you say, well, what do I do? I'm still fighting with this whole thing. You need to do what the woman did. You need to press into the presence of Jesus Christ. You need to take hold of him by faith. And you need to allow his power to flow through you over and over again until you are convinced that you are a daughter or you are a son of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not your identity. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say it before. I just want to help you to, uh, this afternoon. There's two voices in your life. One voice says, you're the divorced person. You're the depressed person. You're the addict. You're the alcoholic. That's the voice of Satan. He wants to keep you down, and he wants to kick you while you're down. That is not the voice of God. The, the true voice of God is the voice that doesn't do this, but he does this. And he says, I love you, and you are a cherished child of God. And so take those thoughts captive and make sure you accept your identity as my child. Accept your identity. Come out of the darkness into the light. It's your choice. Remember what we said last week, you always, always, always have a choice. And so in verse 30, it says that Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. That's an amazing statement. And by the way, that's been my prayer this weekend at all three services. I've said, Jesus, I'm praying that power comes out of you this weekend and goes into some people here at Calvary Port St. Lucie because they're desperate and they need your power and your wisdom and your love. And he still does it today, not just 2,000 years ago. And he felt the power coming out of him and immediately he turned about in the crowd and he said, who touched my garments? It's like there's hundreds of people here, maybe over 1,000 people here. Who touched my garment? And verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Lord, everybody's touching you. And the Lord's thinking, no, only one person touched me with a touch of faith. And verse 32 says, and he looked around to see who had done it. And so Jesus says, who touched my garment? Now, you may disagree with me, but I personally believe that he knew exactly who touched his garment. He's the son of God. And so why is he asking, who touched my garment? The reason why is because he wanted this woman to step up and publicly share her story. He's asking some of you to do that as well. And you might say, well, why? Why does she have to step up and share her story? I'm gonna answer your question with a question. Okay, so you're asking me, why does she have to step up and share her story? My question to you is, who's standing next to Jesus? Whose house are they going to? Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, whose little girl's at the point of death. And so Jairus needs to hear this woman's story. Why? His little girl is sick he needs to hear the story of how this woman has been made whole. Who touched my garment? Step up, please. Share your story. 
And so the woman, in verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. I love it. Here we have another person fallen at the feet of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't have the ever, ever, ever have the attitude that God is like the big guy upstairs. That's irreverent and disrespectful. God is not the big man upstairs. He's Yahweh, the one and only true God. And I hope when you pray to him, at least sometimes you get on your knees like the people in this chapter. And I hope sometimes you even get on your face before the one who knits you together in your mother's womb. He's deserving of our worship and he's deserving of all of our adoration and respect and honor. Yes, we are his children. Yes, we can be intimate with the Lord, but we gotta have respect at the same time. And so she falls down before him and tells him how much of the truth at the end of verse 33? The whole truth. This woman shared her testimony, and by the way, so should we. And so your next point is that the Lord will use our testimony to help other people. Now, it's intriguing to me as a Bible teacher and as a pastor that this is the second time this point has come up in two separate passages. It came up last week, and it's coming up again now this week. So what that tells me is that there's somebody at Calvary PSL who needs to share your story. God's given you another reminder. I've set you free from sin and death. I've set you free from being all in bondage. I've set you free from whatever physical illness, and I've saved you and you need to tell someone your story. And so maybe this lady, as she falls on her knees, says something like this publicly. She says, Lord, Lord, it's me. You see, 12 years ago, it says she told the whole truth. 12 years ago, I started to bleed, and I started feeling weak, and it just got, I just got weaker and weaker. And emotionally, I felt rejected because nobody wanted to ever be around me. And I went to all these so-called doctors and I spent all my money and I only got worse. Lord, I was slowly dying. But when I saw you get out of that boat on the shore of Capernaum, I knew that if I could press in and just touch your garment, you'd make me whole. And you did it. I can feel inside of me that the blood flow has ended. Thank you for saving me. That was her testimony. And so Jairus is standing there, and he hears the whole thing. And you need to know that his faith is strengthened. And he's sitting there thinking as the synagogue ruler, well, if Jesus can heal her, he can heal my little girl back at my house. That's why you and I need to share our story. As we go through life, you need to know that God is going to put people around us who are going through difficult times. God is going to give us Divine appointments, Monday through Saturday, maybe even Sunday afternoon or even Sunday morning here, he'll give us divine appointments. People who desperately need to hear about Christ's love and his power and his mercy. And so if we, like the woman, will have enough courage to come out of the crowd and publicly share our story, then somebody, we may not even know that that person needs to hear it, but they're gonna hear the story of how Christ delivered us and they're gonna be helped. And so share your story. That's your homework assignment before service next week. Share your story with one person, at least one person. Ask God, God, show me one person that needs to hear my story and just do it. 
You say, I'm afraid. This woman was afraid. She was trembling, but she stepped up. She faced her fear, and she shared her story, and Jairus got helped. Look at verse 34 now. Look how Jesus responds. She tells him the whole truth, and he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so how did Christ respond to this woman? I love it, I love it, I love it, okay? Here's what he did not do. When she came up and she told the whole truth, in other words, that she's been bleeding for 12 years, making her ceremonially unclean, here's what he did not do. What? <laughs> Why? Why did you touch me? Don't you know that you have defiled me because you touched me? Woman, and you, you defiled this whole crowd. You should be ashamed of yourself. Is that how Jesus responded to her? No, no, no. That's how the Pharisees responded to people, which is why so many people were turned off by religion. No, no, no. What did Jesus do? He said, daughter. Did you catch it? There's her new identity. Not the issue, the woman with the issue of blood. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of this calamity, this issue, this disease inside of your life. And so the woman pressed into the presence of Christ, and what did he do? How did he respond? He showed her his love, and he solved her issue. Okay, so let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word? Okay, all right, so let's be doers of the word. Here's application right here. Press into the presence of Christ with how much faith? Full faith in his ability and prepare yourself for a miracle. And so maybe you're here today and you've been dealing with a quote-unquote issue for a very long time and you're absolutely depleted and you're absolutely drained. You wanna solve the problem, you wanna solve the issue, but the harder you try to solve it, the worse it becomes in your life. Now here's my encouragement to you, here's what you gotta do, you need to press into the presence of Christ. And as you press, have full faith in his ability and then prepare yourself for a miracle. Okay, I'm gonna give you another question, you can answer out loud, yes or no. Is God still in the miracle business today? Yes. yes. And by the way, that's about 20% of you just said yes. And so with 20% participation, I've gotta ask the question again to really see where you guys are at. Okay, so here we go. Do you really believe God is still in the miracle business today, yes or no? Yes, yes absolutely, he's still in the miracle business today. And did you know the world believes that sometimes more than the church? There's an article in the Huffington Post that referenced a survey of American physicians. And so U.S. doctors were surveyed, and here's the results, and I'm quoting now. 73% of U.S. physicians believe in miracles. You see how the world sometimes believes more than the church? 73% of American physicians believe 
in miracles, and 55% claim to have personally witnessed treatment results that they consider miraculous. Absolutely, God still does miracles today. But if you doubt, maybe you won't get a miracle. Yes, God still does miracles today, but he responds to people like this woman who press into his presence with faith. Look at what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us then with, what's the word? Confidence, not shyness, not timidity, not doubt, not believing. No, let us then come with confidence, uh, draw near to the throne of grace. Why should we do that? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But here's the problem. Some of you are not drawing near. And the reason you're not drawing near is because you think God's mad at you. You think God wants to judge you. You think God's up there doing this, shaking his finger down at you. And so you're saying, no, thank you. I'm not going to draw near. But I, I draw your attention to the fact that, hey, didn't you notice? It's not a throne of judgment. Do you see line three, first word? It is a throne of what? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ took your sin in his body. He paid for your sin in full. He even said to Telestai, paid in full. And so God's not gonna make you pay for your sin when his son already paid for your sin. That's the basis of his grace. And so if you'll draw near with confidence, sin or no sin, yes, you should admit it and quit it. Yes, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. But if you admit it and quit it, you can press, draw near in confidence to the throne of grace. And when you do that, you won't find someone who's angry with you or ready to judge you. You'll, you'll find a daddy who's ready to give you grace and help, who's ready to call you a daughter like Jesus called her daughter who's ready to call you son. Now, having said all that, I gotta teach the whole counsel of God to be faithful as a pastor. And so sometimes, there will be times in your life when you'll have an issue and you'll press into the presence of Christ and the answer won't come, at least not in a time that you think it should come. Let me explain. Paul the Apostle experienced this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul the Apostle, who by the way had full faith, who by the way went around and God used him as a channel of his blessing and he healed people wherever he went as an apostle. The Apostle Paul, who had full faith, had an issue. He called it his thorn in the flesh. Does anybody remember how many times he prayed that God would remove that thorn in the flesh? Three times. He pleaded with the Lord three times, remove this issue, solve this problem. And look how Jesus answered him. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he did not solve his issue. He left him with the thorn in the flesh. Now scholars debate as to what the thorn in the flesh was. Some believe it was his poor eyesight. That's where I lean. That's where I agree. I think there's sufficient evidence in the New Testament that, that this is probably his thorn in the flesh. But we really don't 100% know what 
the issue was. But what we do know is that when he asked the Lord to solve the issue, the Lord said no. Now, how did Paul respond to that? Did he take his ball and go home? Did he say, forget church, forget God, God's not gonna answer my prayer, then I'm out of here? No, what he did is that he humbled himself and he accepted the sovereign will of God and he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, okay, Lord, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, the reason God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh is because he's the apostle Paul. He had received so many revelations that were, would be mind-blowing to you and I that if God did not give him a thorn in the flesh, Paul's head would have blown up and he would have had the biggest ego on earth. And so God gave him this to keep him humble. God gave him that thorn in the flesh to keep him dependent on the Lord because when Paul was weak, then Christ was strong. And so we have two figures in the Bible. We have a woman with an issue of blood. She was healed. Then we have the Apostle Paul in this one situation. He was not healed. And so what should we do? Here's what we do. If you're with me, say amen. Here's what we do. If we have an issue like the woman, we absolutely 100% press into the presence of Christ with full faith in his ability, and we expect a miracle. That's how we pray. We pray with confidence. And we look to Jesus Christ. But... If the Lord says no or not now, then we accept the sovereign will of God and we say, okay, Lord, obviously you want to keep me dependent upon you. Does this make sense to you guys? Just wanna make sure you get the whole story. And so now in verse 35, it says that while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Can you imagine if you're a parent here, can you imagine hearing those words? Why trouble the teacher any further? But you gotta love Jesus in verse 36. It says, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, hey, do not fear, only believe. And so they're walking to Jairus' house, the crowd is everywhere, and somebody says, Jairus, your daughter's dead. I don't know how blunt this was, but my goodness. And this is the worst news any mom, any dad could ever get. And so right now, he's just shaken to the core, and Jesus, who is the lover of his soul, steps in and says, hey, Jairus, don't fear. Only believe. There's that encouragement again. That's the Lord. And by the way, that's not all he said. Because when you take Luke and add it to Mark, here's the whole thing that Jesus said to Jairus. Don't fear, only believe, and help me out with the last four words. Now that, what is that? That's a clear word from Jesus. You guys remember two sermons ago? They're on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, hey guys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. What do you call that? A clear word from Jesus. They get in the boat, a big storm comes, they're freaking out, they're afraid, they're shaking him to wake up. We're gonna perish, don't you care? And they failed the test. Why? Why'd they fail the test? 
because they didn't believe the clear word from Jesus. As I said two weeks ago, when Jesus says we're going over, you're not gonna go under. And so Jairus, here's my clear promise to you. I'm going to save your daughter. And so here's the application point. If you don't get anything else, get this this afternoon. That no matter how bad the news becomes, if we have received a clear word from the Lord, we must not waver in our faith. If it's a clear word. And so here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes as we're pressing into the presence of Christ with full faith in his ability, as we're doing that, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes he will give us a clear promise. He's gonna tell us what he's going to do in the future. Those are exciting times, by the way, in the Christian's life. Sometimes he gives us a clear word. It either comes through the scriptures or it comes through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And by the way, there are some quote-unquote cessationists, I don't know if they all believe this, but definitely some cessationists believe not only that not all the gifts are for today, but that the only way God speaks today is through the Bible. Well, let me just tell you that I respect the cessationists in the body of Christ. They're great teachers of the word of God, but on this issue, they've got it wrong. Because not only does God speak through his word, God also speaks through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Have you experienced that? It says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts in Colossians. The word rule means umpire. And so the Holy Spirit sometimes, okay, here's what happens. You're going along, you got an issue, and the Holy Spirit speaks right there in your heart, deep in your spirit about what he is going to do. Let me tell you something. When you receive that or you receive a clear word from the Lord, no matter how bad the news gets, don't let your faith waver. Just keep trust in the Lord. That's what God is telling Jairus here in this passage. And so, some of you know my story. I'll just tell a little bit of it. But I knew that I was called to be a pastor probably when I was around 18, but definitely by the time I was 20, I knew I was called to be a pastor. And so I was ordained and got my degree in biblical studies and sent resumes out. And don't, don't go, ah, but, you know, no church wanted me. Okay. So I feel like I'm having a pity party up here. My goodness. And so I had to work. You know, you got to work. If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. So I went down and got a job at Costco Wholesale. Now, there's nothing wrong with working for Costco Wholesale. It's a great company. I did it for 12 years. Okay. And so here's, but here's the problem. I knew I was called to be a pastor for 12 years while working at Costco Wholesale. Now when you know that you're called to be a pastor and you got this burning desire to teach and preach the word of God, but you're driving a forklift. And I was down at the distribution center down in Riviera Beach, Florida, and you're unloading trucks, and you're sweeping out trucks, and this is the lowest, I didn't tell the other two services this, so you're you're special, but the, the lowest point I ever got, I think in my life, is when I knew I was called to be a pastor and I'm there and, and you had to get to work like at 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m., and I'm there, and some, I don't know why I'm saying this, Lord forgive me, but some truck driver actually um, uh, relieved himself in the parking lot underneath his truck, and I had to go and clean it up. 
And you talk about low. And not only that, but I have so-called friends at Costco who are saying, you sure you're called to be a pastor? Because now it's year five, year six, year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10. But here's what you need to know. By God's grace, I never let go of the clear word that God called me to be a pastor. And here's what, here's what happened. What happened is I didn't take my ball and go home. What happened is my wife and I got plugged into local churches. We didn't just sit soaking sour. What we did is that we connected, we served, we grew, we gave financially. Because how many of you know when you're faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much? And so we kept active and we kept active. And one day, you heard it if you were here last year, he's on our board of directors, Pastor Dan Plord from Calvary Chapel, Jupiter. He told the story last year. He said one day, this is months, a few months after, um, uh, actually I think eight months after we started going to Calvary Chapel, Jupiter, he said it never happened to him before, it's never happened to him since, but in the middle of the night, God woke him up and said, hire Mike Wiggins. God still speaks today, by the way. He calls me up, well first he calls his board, gets permission, he calls me up, and next thing you know, I'm a pastor. He called me when I was 20. It happened when I was 33. God doesn't always do things in our time, but how many of you know his time is perfect? His time's always perfect. So no matter how bad the news may seem, don't let go of the clear promise that God has given you. Keep moving forward in faith. And so now in verse 37, it says that, Jesus allowed no one to follow him. He just encouraged Jairus. Jairus just heard his daughter's dead. And it says that Jesus allowed no one to follow him. Okay, so everybody in the crowd, step back. Don't go any further. Except you, Peter, you, James, and you, John, the brother of James. Verse 38, and it came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So if, you need, um, if you're new to the Bible, um, back in the first century Judaism, they would actually hire mourners and the ladies would come and they would scream and they would yell and they would play flutes and then they'd get a paycheck for doing that. Verse 39, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. He's talking about her body, not her soul. I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 40, and when they laughed at him, they're laughing in the face of the Son of God. Talk about doubt. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. You see what God does to unbelievers? He puts them outside. Some of you need to do that with some of your friends. Because God's given you a clear word, he wants you to believe, but you got friends who don't believe and they're discouraging you. What you need to do is put them outside and you need to have friends like Peter, James, and John <laughs> encourage you in your faith. He put them outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. I guess so. 
And so Jesus takes Jairus' little girl's limp hand and he says to her, little girl, get up. And again, when you read Luke, you get the whole story. At that moment, it says that her spirit did what? Returned. And she got up at once. You need to know if you're a believer that when your body dies, either, you, either it sleeps in the grave, your body sleeps in the grave, or if you choose cremation, your ashes sleep, quote unquote, in the grave. Your body sleeps. But how many of you know your spirit never sleeps? To be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And so as soon as this little girl died, her body sleeps, Jesus wasn't lying, but her spirit immediately went into paradise. And so what does Jesus do here? He tells her, come back. And Jesus makes a long distance call. So far, AT&T could never get there. It's way out of the range, all the way to Abraham's bosom, to, to, to paradise, and her spirit returns to her body, and she gets up, this 12-year-old girl, and she begins walking around the room. Now, give me a little liberty here. I know it doesn't say it in your Bible, but what, what, what did she say? I think she said, Mom, Dad, I love you, but why did you ask Jesus to bring me back? I was having such a good time in paradise. You see, you see listen, some of you have recently lost loved ones, and I am so, so sorry for your loss. But if you right now are wishing they would come back to you, please understand this. They don't want to come back. They're in paradise. And if you know the Lord, one day you're going to meet them in paradise, and you're going to have all eternity to be with your loved one. Listen, any little kid under the age of accountability who dies... Listen, they immediately go to paradise. I don't care where they live in the world. If they're under the age of accountability, when babies die, little kids die under the age of accountability, straight to the arms of the Father. And when adults who know the Lord, who are past the age of accountability, realize they're sinners, but turn from their sin and ask Jesus for his forgiveness, they immediately go into the presence of the Father You'll be there with them, just hang on. But I know when sometimes when little kids die, people have an attitude and they say, they're so young, they had their whole lives to live. This is not fair, God. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you realize that their life when they reach the shores of the kingdom of God has just begun? You're gonna find out when you go to the kingdom of God it's way better than this fallen world. And so hang on to that sure hope that the resurrection is coming because Jesus is risen from the grave. Last verse, verse 43, and he strictly charged mom and dad, them, that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus said, hey, mom, dad, don't tell anybody what just happened. And you say, why not? Because Jesus knew it would not be beneficial to this family. 
the crowd out there would never leave these poor people's doorstep. The superstitious in the crowd, they would try to make this little 12-year-old girl into some kind, some kind of icon. They would say, hey, just send her out so we could touch her. Let's make a little statue of her. And Jesus knew that wouldn't be beneficial. And he said, you know what? Just don't say anything. And he left. And so in closing, if you struggle with the whole idea that God loves you, I hope you've seen today in the second half of Mark chapter five that he absolutely is the lover of your soul. He reaches out to sinful people like you and me, no matter what you've done in the past. In fact, he loves us so much. Look at what John said in his little letter at the end of your Bible. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. You see, some of you may think, I can get to heaven if I'm just good enough. If you could get to heaven because you're good enough, why did God have to become a man and hang half naked on a cross? Could you answer me that question? If you can get to heaven by your goodness, why did God hang on a cross and shed his blood? Here's why. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Here's why. Because he wants you to know how much he loves you. He died for you. He rose again. And now his arms are stretched out wide. And he says, hey, I don't care what you've done. I love you. Come to me. But it's not enough to just acknowledge facts in your head. You need to trust Christ with your heart. You need to turn from your old way and turn to him alone as your savior, as your Lord, as your redeemer, as your master. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm new here, then knowing Christ.